You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shaka Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. I have my co-host here with me, our amazing Gary Hawkins. Hey Gary, how are you? Great, Shaker. How about you today? Terrific. I hope you had a wonderful uh, July 4th. And I know this episode will be going live in about a week from now. And as usual, Gary, you've been having an amazing string of guests here. And today, yet again, one more dimension. I think what's amazing about retail is there's just so many different aspects to it. You know, when you think about, I think most people think about retail, they think about, you know, going and buying a product and there's so much that goes behind it. And um, so many things that have to come together to make it happen. And I think truly it's an amazing industry. And I know we have somebody really special to talk about design today, Gary. So you want to uh, introduce our guest? Absolutely. So today we've got Joanne Purchase, who is the uh, CEO of Chase Design with us. And I'll let Joe uh, go through his background and and, uh, what Chase Design does today. Uh, I I think a lot of people across retail, certainly CPG retail, may not have heard of Chase, but they've probably seen Chase's work, even though they may not know the company behind that work. So I'll let Joe dig into that and uncover some of that for us. But, you know, Joe and I have known each other for the better part of 20 years, I think now. Joe, we must have met, what, back in grade school or something, because neither one (laughs) of us is getting any older. So That's right. So anyway, Joe, please give us some of your background and describe what Chase Design does. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Really pleased to join you guys in this conversation. My background, traditionally trained in in CPG, in the beer industry, clothing industry, in brand management, new product development, and then, um, you know, been in the agency side for probably half my career for about 15 years, shopper marketing firms, and then most recently leading the charge over at Chase Design. Chase Design has actually been around for 64 years. Dave Chase started the company in upstate New York in Skinny Atlas, Finger Lakes region. Uh, as an industrial designer. And that actual industrial design, behavioral-based design has never left the organization. We've evolved from just industrial design designing products where we actually hold over 2,500 patents in medical devices and uh, packaged products like for Energizer and P&G and so on. We got into packaging design and then we got into merchandising retail design. And probably where we spend a lot of our time today now is actually in the retail design space, reinventing categories. We've just in the last 10 years, we've probably done 5,000 projects at retail. And you can see here behind me is actually, this is one of our retail labs. We have multiple retail labs. I'm actually sitting in Cincinnati office right now. You kind of take a guess why <laughs> P&G is in the backyard. And so P&G comes over here a lot to work with us to reinvent their categories. And it's, you know, some of it's small uh, where we just re- reinvent uh, a four foot category. Sometimes we're reinventing entire department, like the beauty department in Target. Destination Beauty 1.0 was done 10 years ago, which was kind of a retail a shot heard around the retail world about reinventing Target's environment, who was always respected to being such a great merchandiser. And we were the only design firm allowed to come inside with P&G to, to really help them redesign environment. Now, since then, we've done a number of other departments inside Target for either Target themselves or working with clients who live in those categories and want to drive, you know, sustainable, uh, full price growth in those categories. So that kind of gives you a background about Chase. Excited to talk to you guys about whatever comes of this uh, next half hour. So Joe, again, you and I have known each other for quite a while. One of the things I find really interesting 
is you know the history we both have around uh, customer data and leveraging customer intelligence, customer insights, and so on into retail. You bring that experience with you into Chase Design. You know, maybe speak to that a little bit about how Chase uses data from a behavioral viewpoint to impact merchandising design and, and some of the work you do. Yeah, for sure. We behavioral based design actually predominantly sits on the qualitative side, but we marry quant with qual because the the, the qual gets us to the why. But if we have to scale things, which we work with a lot of major, you know, retailers and major CPGs that need scale, not just a one store, you know, situation, they need, you know, 10,000 stores. Well, in that case, we got to bring a marry of, of quant data and qual working together. So with retailers that have specifically household or shopper level data, we love going into the basket analysis to see what's going on. So we're looking at the what, when and what. And, and how is it happening? You know, what time of day things are happening? You know, to study the, in a sense, the orchestra, the decision trees that are going on in these categories. Now, what's happened over the years though, is category management, which is obviously an amazing practice over the last 60 years, is really a, it, they take a, a, a backward lens to things because they're using all the past data to then predict the future. We marry, and this is a, no disrespect, I love category management, we work really well with category management, but we do a lot of qual to understand that shopper behavior of when a shopper's in the aisle, what are they asking themselves? What are those questions that are not being answered based the way the shelf is being presented to them? And so then we start to play with what we call orchestrated decision trees. And what the orchestrated decision trees is using the quant data to tell us what's going on today. But we wanna say, okay, based on what we heard, if we want to answer those questions to help that shopper get to a, a faster, easier, or better solution, we want to orchestrate that shelf in a different way. So then we take the whys and answer those, those whys, which are generally tend to be barriers, right? And we're trying to over, overcome those barriers. And then we reorchestrate the shelf in a way that presents it now you know, a great example I always use is in, in the shampoo aisle. You know, women know how to sh shop shampoo and beauty for years, but men, as they go in the shampoo aisle, it's, you know, they didn't pay as much close attention. And so when Head & Shoulders was trying to increase their business and figure out how to get men to buy not just shampoo, but conditioner, it, we realized it was not just an orchestration issue, but a packaging and orchestration issue. So redesigning the bottle to actually be up and upside down to have the shampoo and conditioner look like a set, like, oh, I should buy these together. Well, you know what that did to the basket? It took a $3 ring or $4 ring and took it to an $8 ring, you know, immediately and had substantial growth. Uh, but then you got to showcase that in the aisle because head and shoulders used to be down to the bottom right by South and blue, head and shoulders, all the dandruff shampoo. But head and shoulders grew far more out of that, not just be dandruff, but more be an everyday shampoo to, for you know healthy scalp, uh, moisturizer scalp, that type of thing. So that's just one example of a thousand, 10,000 of these types of things we do, but marrying up that purchase history, uh, specifically in shampoos, marrying up when the shopper was coming to the shelf, what are they looking for? What are the questions asking? And using our behavioral design approach to then answer that question. That's terrific. So Joe, this is fascinating because I think this is a very unique topic. We've never really tackled in-store uh, design and experience. But when you say you look at basket data, 
what specifically are you looking for in that? Are you looking at affiliate purchases? You know, what do people tend to buy together? What's the route they typically take to the store or is it all of the above? It's, it's actually all of the above because we're trying to understand the journey. Like as we look at, you know, certain clients say, oh yeah, we have all this research. And historically it's been very much consumer based research. Now in the last 10 years, certain clients have gotten a lot better at shopper research asking very specific shopper questions, trying to map out that journey. So that's helpful. Um, we specifically spend a lot of time, like once they get to the aisle, is asking them, you know, why and what's going on, right? And doing a lot of ethnographic research. Now in the basket level, we're using that to try to match up and say, okay, could we get this loyalty shopper, look at their entire history, and then figure out what's, how frequently are they shopping? What's in the basket at the same time? What do the trips look like, you know? So it's, you start to dimensionalize, you know, this shopper. And then we get the qual to kind of get the extra color conversation around what they're thinking. Because you can't get that out of the basket there. We don't know what they're thinking. We can hypothesize. You know, Gary, you and I know, we go back to our VMS days. And, you know, we, we looked at when people were buying certain arthritic medicines. And then we looked at, you know, a Ziploc innovation was to actually the, zip, the zipper on Ziploc was specifically for people that we found were having it most helpfully with arthritis because they couldn't figure out how to get the two things together. Well, the zipper was easy, right? Yeah. So that got uncovered digging into basket level data as a product innovation, but it also gets uncovered, you know, in the combination of why and how as they're shopping, what they're thinking. So, yeah, but we look at all that stuff. Well, not, I wouldn't say, you know, clients, not every client uses basket level data as much as they should, right? I mean, there's a lot of product innovation opportunities when you start to dissect that stuff. Uh, but then we like to always get to that conversational why, because we can actually then map that back. Like if you think about it, we got a loyalty member, we got their data, basket level data. We talk to them, maybe 15 people. We find if we get to about 12 or 15 people, we start hearing the same thing then. So you don't have to, you don't have to get to a lot, but then you can extrapolate that back to the panel to your loyalty panel and say, okay, what other baskets look alike? Say, wow, there's actually about 1.2 million people that look like these people, right? So you can start to extrapolate the size of the prize. Right, right, that's, that's fascinating. So I'm guessing that as part of your design process, you must be doing a lot of tests and learns in your, in your labs where you either have focus groups or walk through to see what the response before you think a design is scalable, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. We use our labs to uh, have, you know, client design workshops and then specifically we'll stage them for shoppers to come in. Um, you know, we have cameras set up that, you know, just watch what's going on, uh, both this lab and then also our, we have one up in Skinny Atlas. Uh, sometimes we make these labs in a temporary situation where we're putting them in, in Minneapolis because we're, you know, target executives want to take part and see what's going on and, and live and breathe that same research in other cities. We've gone down to Florida, obviously for Publix region, you know, different retailers, things like that. Yeah, but definitely bring shoppers through and, and start to look at their behaviors. When Destination Beauty, when we did the 1.0, that was actually done in, up in Minneapolis where we replicated the entire beauty department three times because what we did is we'd take shoppers through the existing beauty department, which didn't look any different than you know, shopping household cleaning products or motor oil. There was nothing inspirational about it, but they had, they highly over-indexed to the beauty category 
shopper, but you know where she was going. She was going to Target for the staples, and then she'd go to Sephora or Ulta because if you look at those environments, they were far more conducive for her to slow down, try things. The lighting was right, you know, explore. And so that's really what became then Destination Beauty. But then we had like, you know, option A and option B starting to have her navigate through watching dwell times, looking at where the eye is going, you know, so doing eye tracking, heat mapping, you know, all that stuff. So we're just, we're getting a lot of data points that are not just conversational also. Right. That's fascinating. You know, I guess in the past uh, year and a half, of course, Joe, with all the, uh, with the pandemic and the, you know, restrictive timings, you know, e-commerce has kind of shot up, right? And I'm sure there's some learnings on how people navigate websites to how you can bring them into store design and how they, you know, because I guess one of the issues with store design is that when a, when you have a company like PNG that has multiple brands, how do you create that brand affiliation across categories? That must be a challenge where it's probably relatively easier to do it because you can have like a personalized view for every single shopper who comes on an e-commerce website, but you can't do it in a physical store, right? So how do right. you bring some of those learnings in? We actually, it's interesting you bring that up because we started our ESPD, you know, shopper-based design is what we call our core process of doing that reinvention that orchestration process. And we started doing ESPD probably about five years ago. And it was, it was a small part, to be honest, you know, it was just like trying to get our feet wet and use our same methodology. We based, could we use our same methodology of studying human behavior, but then apply it in the digital fashion? And we found we could, we used some different tools to get there, but we've done, we've helped. And I don't want just, just to be a PNG show. We, we have, you know, 50 different CPG clients. And so I want to give tribute to other food CPGs that are out there, beauty beauty clients that are out there, we do the same process, but we've, we've leveraged that data because we see, you know, if they can get that click view history, you know, that's really helpful for us. It's, it, it actually tells us a little bit more than the basket level data, right? Basket gives us one thing, but we don't know how long it took them to put that next item in the basket and what, you know, we know what was in the basket on that trip, but we don't know the time elapsed it right. took to do that trip, right? On the web, we can start to now see what's going on, especially over the last 18 months. It's been really interesting to see that click through and view data to see what's the time elapsed to make that ship. What is the shopping trip? What, what originally, or what started in their basket anyways? Cause it was, hey, you got this last time, you want it again? So that's a quick ad, you know, but just watching that click through history now has been helpful. And I think we, we're trying to now do every shopper-based design project where whether the client wants it or not, we're going to ask them for their e-commerce data. Uh, let's say it's a Walmart reinvention project. We want the walmart.com data. But at the same time, what other .com data do you have to inform this? Because we want to, we're trying to reinvent Walmart in-store and walmart.com. We want to look at what the competition is doing too say, mm, you know, Walmart, did you consider this or should we consider this? The, the other thing is we go through and try, if you think of what I talk about orchestrated decision trees or reinventing the shelf. And, you know, the 5,000 projects I talked about we've done in the last 10 years just for PNG is 95% of those projects to the naked eye for the shopper. You won't know that we did much in the category until you experience looking at the shelf. There's no signage difference. There's no beautification process. So 90 plus percent of our projects are actually just a reorchestration of the category management principles, but laying it out a different way 
of saying, okay, here, if we organize it this way, because 80% of the time we can't get retailers to put up that stuff anyways, right? Right, right. So we, yeah. always, we always test our orchestrations without signage and then we test it with signage. And the reason we do that is because we want to convince them, say, look, we got an extra 15% lift with this signage. And actually, for an ROI purposes, you only need a 6% lift to actually pay for the signage. So why don't we at least get a couple stores to put some signage up to show you and control stores without the signage and see what happens in real life? Because we simulate, but then we go to pilots. Uh, but the, the key is tying in that, e that click-through data now. Uh, especially in the last 18 months, it's been very helpful for us. And the last thing I'll say is we also do then reinvent and help the dot-coms figure out how to lay out their wireframes within the category. Man, Amazon was a bear to try to get them to change wireframes, but we, we got them to change the wireframes in, in the household cleaning department because the way they were laying out the department was treating it like every other category you know, on Amazon. And believe me, Amazon was like, hell no, we're not changing those wireframes. That would throw our whole business. I'm like, but wait a second, you want to, your goal, you're assuming everyone's ready to buy and want to convert more people. We'll show you. So we simulate actually, you know, different wireframes, just like we simulate other retail environments. And we showed them if, if you lay out household cleaning in this way, because this is how people are used to doing it in store. And now you apply that because people don't immediately change a new behavior because now they're on the web. They're forced because of how the website's designed, right. how to think about the category. And so they're forced to use search a lot. But if you want to naturally lay it out where you present you know, a high level, what, is, what defines the household cleaning category? What are the subcategories? If you try to just decide you're going to change that overnight because you're Amazon, you're kidding yourself. Right. Because there's, there's, 50 years of behavior of buying those products, right? right. And, and in the last 10 years and how it's presented itself in physical retail. So, so then we start to change the wireframes and, and we've gotten Amazon to change their wireframes. We've gotten walmart.com to change their wireframes. So to me, changing a wireframe is like changing the shelf, right? right. That's exactly how it presents, how, where you present the category. Like Meyer Baby was a, a recent project we did. It was PNG again, but it was just, it was diapers and wipes. But what we found in Meyer was, is there was four different disparate categories that she has to shop across about 150, maybe 200 feet of the store, maybe more to actually shop those categories. Now think about mom with a kid in her hip, maybe a kid in the basket, time compressed shopping trip to have to shop that many linear feet of a store, that many different aisles. And what we found is if you create a baby department, you bring clothing, food, carriages, strollers, diapers, wipes, and put all five aisles together as a baby department, you're gonna grow your basket immensely. That was our hypothesis. We piloted it in a warehouse, did some research and saw that they were getting two, 300% lifts. So Meyer just said, all right, let's do it. That whole exercise started as trying to optimize diapers and wipes. Hmm. You know what I mean? And now at that time we didn't have click-through data, like the web wasn't big then, cause that was like four or five years ago. But now it'd be interesting, you know, as, so it's some of those categories we've done you know, we go back every year to now keep optimizing, keep optimizing. So we don't just sit on it for like three years and it's done. We keep going back. And the click-through data is really helping us do that. We are, we are seeing a big trend though, you know, because obviously so many people were afraid to go to retail, so they're forced to use e-commerce. 
we're seeing a big trend now because there's a pent up demand to get back to shopping, like physical shopping. Yeah. Is that, uh, you know, the buy online pickup in store is, is having a big drop. Now, we kind of assumed it was going to be, I don't know, maybe a third to 50%, but we're seeing 60, 70% drops in that because people are coming back to store now. Now, right. on, the flip, on the flip side, we've seen a huge surge in our business because now a lot of clients, P&G, JMS, uh, JM Smucker Company, and so on, are really looking to reinvent the categories to make them more exciting. Because if we're going to draw it back to the store and, you know, Kroger, Walmart, those types of retailers, they're like, okay, if we're going to, if you think about it, people were used to multi-channel shopping, like cross-channel shopping, like they had three or four retailers they could buy for that category. And so they got used to that. Now, as people are coming back with the retailers are trying to say, man, let's, let's get it all. <laughs> right? This is like a classic case of life inspires art and art inspires life type of thing. Right. So yeah. if this, yeah. uh, Clearly a symbiotic relationship, you know, and when we talk about on the show and uh, you see out in the real world, people are talking about hybrid retail, about, you know, there's more people shopping online. So a bigger percentage of the population has experimented with shopping online than ever before. And, you know, if you have a hundred customers, likelihood is 80 of them have tried shopping online as opposed to, you know, 20 before. And, mm -hmm. uh, but I guess the percentages of transactions has not changed drastically. It's, it's grown up significantly. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, when you talk about stores like the Amazon Go store and you talk about, you know, touchless checkout and this whole concept of an autonomous store, you have to think that design has to play such a central role in terms of how people, because uh, you're, you're kind of fusing physical and digital in some sense, and you have to learn from one to apply to the other and, and vice versa, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We have, you know, the, the Amazon Go store was, you know, that was just to me, it was like bringing me back in time, Gary, when we're thinking about all the stuff we were doing in, in, in your store. And then also just, you know, in, in other people's stores. And it was just like an amazing experience where I, but I thought I'm like, you know, okay, Amazon years ago, they used to be able to provide services to retailers. Like they, they were the fulfillment arm for target.com. Actually, when I was at Epsilon Interactive, I actually advised Dale Nitschke at the time. He was the CEO of Target.com. I said, Dale, I think you should sever that relationship soon because they're getting too much information about your business. And they're mm -hmm. going to actually start to get into your business like tomorrow because I was providing them email services. And I said, because hmm. I was also providing Amazon with email services at the time. And so I was like, hmm, they're learning too much. You got to and like a year later, he cut off that relationship. They went direct and figured out how to do it themselves. But uh, Amazon Go, when I saw that, I'm like, okay, cool. Now Amazon's such a formidable competitor. No other retailer is going to buy that model. It's going to work for Amazon. Right. But who could, who could be out there that now could provide that as a service? So because Chase designs inside Momentum and McCann, American Express is a huge client of Momentums. And so I, I went to the uh, team and I said, let's, let's propose to actually build one of those stores for American Express where they could then provide it with their merchant services group as a, as a service solution, not just as a payment provider, right. but a technology commerce provider to take over. And so we launched the American Express frictionless store, first one in Barclays Center, and there's now another one launching soon. And then they're, they're going to probably have you know 10 over the next couple of years. But the idea is then to have take that partnership and that service model to retailers to help them launch that. I know Gary, you're big in that space too, which is uh, 
you know, trying to figure that whole, you know, because with Amazon now launching across, you know, the, the grocery, you know, a, kind of a supermarket format, I think others will have to start to react pretty quickly because it is pretty amazing. It's kind of, I don't know if you guys had a chance to shop the Amazon Go or some of those stores. It's a little spooky when you first walk in and grab your stuff and walk out. You do feel like you're stealing, <laughs> but, it's, it, but, it's, but it's awesome. And yeah. Barclay, the fans in Barclay Center love it because think about it, you're paying $200 a ticket to watch whatever is a concert, a ball game, basketball game, whatever it is. The last thing you want to do is wait in line. Well, now there's a store where you can get any kind of beverage, hot sandwich, whatever, walk in, walk out, get back to your seat, not even worry about it. Yeah. So, so Joe, uh, I, I find the stuff you're doing, you were talking about a few minutes ago, bringing together knowledge of the shopping trip in store with click data and so on to, to improve customer insights and so on. You know, one of the things I've written about uh, a lot looking forward the next few years is the sort of blending of the digital and physical worlds of shopping, right? How these things are coming together. What, what are you seeing from your perspective? And I, I think you're pretty uniquely positioned to you know, help lead a lot of this. How are you seeing digital influence the in-store physical environment? How are you seeing more digital coming into that environment, you know, be it digital signage or other tools? And, and certainly you know, a lot of people looking at this as they're going up and down the aisles. Uh, what are you seeing in that space? Yeah, I think um, you know, we're seeing certain behaviors, um, let's take a, um, a category like laundry, uh, where we saw what was happening online is people were actually, whether it was you know, good targeted advertising, good related people, other people buy this, you should buy this type thing, but it created a regimen behavior of not just buying lunch detergent, but buying lunch detergent, softener, dryer sheets, and, and maybe scent boosters. So we were seeing basket behavioral data online that was actually better than what was happening in store. We're like, hmm, where are those categories in store? How far are they away from each other? How, what's the lineal feed? What, how long does it take to consider that? And it was, you know, in some cases, like the scent boosters and the dryer sheets when we're maybe across the aisle or, or on the backside of the next aisle. We're like, hmm, that's not very good. So obviously for the, the efforts that we've done in that category, you can start to see a solution where hmm, maybe one of the lead brands should put forth the solution that shows laundry detergent, fabric softener, dryer sheets and boosters together to create a regimen, you know, and take advantage of what we learned online to take to the physical store and prove to the retailers say, hmm, I think you're actually having a chance to really boost your basket here. And of course it played out exactly that where that execution, I don't want to go into the details of it, but you know, it's a little fresh, uh, but it's, it's, it's out there now. And it's proved very successful, you know, for this manufacturer that's kind of, you know, putting that out there. And uh, um, so that's just one example. I think the other example is, you know, what we're seeing of technology with the mobile device in the hand, you know, you know, COVID, you know, I think taught every type of retail operation, whether you're a restaurant or a store, or a storefront or re, uh, grocery and mass market is you got to sanitize your, your place a lot more, which is great. I think, I, I hope all those behaviors continue, right? Because how many times you've been to a restaurant or, or even a store and you're like, man, is this even clean to buy this stuff? But the biggest technology difference is, you know, in, in higher, more considered purchases like iRobot, which is a client of ours, a lot of digital screenage, right? You got to, you got to display a lot of information and touch screens, like, to be able to navigate and understand why should I buy 
this $1,200 robot in a vacuum versus the $600 option. You know, you need a little more information. And right. what we're finding is the technology is still existing, but we're using the mobile device to actually connect Bluetooth to drive the screen because people are okay touching their handheld device. And so now we're just Bluetooth enabling because all those screens, you know, for like when we work with Apple Beats too. And so if you see their display, some of their displays actually have 16 different screens in their display because they got a simple, simple little tablet for every single like product information. They were all touch screens. You know, those are all changed now over just Bluetooth enabled screens to talk to your iPhone or Samsung phone or whatever. So I think that's a big, you know, thing. Also, as you guys know, QR codes was like kind of came on, died on the vine because no one had it. And then the iPhone, obviously, I forget which operating system it finally, you know, called 10.0, it incorporated right in the camera. Well, that still was such a blimp in the screen. That was maybe, okay, now you got a couple million of 300 million people that have smartphones and, and you know, maybe it was a little higher than that, but it didn't happen until restaurants were yeah. forced to put all their menus on QR codes. Right. Now, you Everybody know, now 150 it. million people know what a QR codes is. So now they kind of, wow, we can literally proliferate the store shelves with information, especially on more complex purchases or people who just need meal solutions, you know, need to know more about this wine, whatever it is. So I think that's what we're seeing is, you know, COVID has done some really nice stuff for us to elevate or I should accelerate behaviors we wanted to have five yeah. years ago happen. Right. So I think, you know, we're definitely applying all that stuff. I think the other subject that I think was just interesting of watching is what's going on with, you know, localization of stores, you know, the big mass merchants and, and just, you know, big retailers in general. And I, I want to give tribute to Trader Joe's who does this really well, that they really take and make their Trader Joe's feel like it's the neighborhood. The whole, the walls are all painted like yeah. the neighborhood illustrations of this is all the icons in, in Bloomfield Hills where I live. And they give back that. I think that one store, honestly, just shows you how much you make as a single single store. They gave back, I forget what it is. It's like $15 million back to a local charity. Wow. You know, and it's like, that just shows how much money one little yeah, grocery yeah, store yeah, can yeah. make, right? But you're seeing it now with Walmart. Walmart is literally trying to, every new store they do, they're trying to take the Trader Joe's approach of really localizing that store just to make it feel like it's part of the community. And then if you go even one step closer is what's happening with both Walmart and Shopify, where they're really trying to help the small guy. And Walmart just launched an initiative, which is literally allowing any small vendor an opportunity to see a, a buyer, right? Like, cause you, you know, Gary, with your years and, and I'm sure both of you guys just over the years of trying to get to buyer, it's not easy, right? Even if you're a big guy getting time with the buyer, 30 minutes with the buyer is like sacred, you know? Right. So they're creating a huge initiative now to make sure the little guy can get access to the merchants to help these little guys become bigger guys, whether it's, you know, a movement around, you know, just getting more black owned businesses help that, which is great, or just the small guy in general, which is awesome. And then Shopify, like reducing their fees, like substantially to launch an e-commerce site right. that, if you're under a million dollars. So I think stuff like that, it's just really a cool trend too. Yeah. Wow. This is fascinating. I mean, clearly, you know, design impacts every area of our, 
our life. And I think when you walk into a retail environment, there's so many unconscious signals, right? That, mm -hmm. that tend to guide uh, our behavior and our navigation through the store. And I think it's, it's fascinating when companies like yours try to understand what those signals are and help brands leverage them to basically increase, improve the experience, right? To make this yeah. feel more natural, like a more natural flow. You're not, you know, I think the next 10 years in retail are going to be really exciting with, you know, with digital and physical kind of merging. And there's going to be, I guess, more cross-pollination that's happening uh, in terms yeah. of design thinking. You know, I know now when you're creating a digital product, you know, it's always design first principles, right? So you're always thinking design first as opposed to how and the engineering and the infrastructure and the architecture of it. Yeah, and I guess I guess that's happening with in-store design too. It's more behavioral, and then and then build the the structure and the physical nature of that experience around it. I mean, I think this is you know obviously a topic that a lot of retailers are thinking about as we move more and more into digital age, which is how do we how do we change you know because I have I hear a lot of shoppers talk to me because we speak to supermarkets and they. They're like, you know, so what is, is the whole idea of the aisles so that I walk as much as I can in the store <laughs> and take the longest <laughs> time, right? And, and I think they all feel that there's this uh, underlying conspiracy theory about how you want to get a customer lost in the store so they spend more time. And, yeah. and, I, and I keep telling them it's not by design, you know, it's not, not really by design. I think people are constantly thinking. And I think there's also this whole concept of there are certain parts of the store that are more optimal for like a dark store. Like, can you have a dark sub store and right. then have the peripheral, which is more experiential. And, you know, so fulfillment in the dark store can happen on my trip. And I just pick up the fresh stuff. And by the time I'm out, everything is packaged, ready for me to go. I mean, I mean there's just so many directions that the stuff can go. It's very exciting. Are you yeah, guys discussing some of those concepts as well? Yeah, well, let me hit on another, you know, obviously when, when COVID hit, obviously delivery, accelerate right instacart and all those companies just took off right i think i think a lot of retailers got to be concerned about the amount of information instacart now sits on is yeah. <laughs> you know right. that, that's talk about high powered loyalty program holy cow timing what's in it the household the makeup of the household the likes the dislikes yeah. you know the returns i mean just incredible amount of data that they sit on so you know watch out mr retailer because instacart's a retailer themselves too but um the, no, I think those pickers are interesting because you got shoppers, you got pickers and, and that'll slow down a little bit because we'll, again, we'll see, you know, people were paying a premium. I think they'll, you know, they'll hold off to a certain level, but I think they'll probably lose. I would guess they lose probably, I don't know, maybe on a high side, 50% of the business will go back because people will go back and just shop themselves, but they'll retain, they grew by 300%. So they'll maybe retain maybe a certain size and then they'll slowly continue to grow. It's just the fees, you know, that are going to only catch up to people. But, you know, for people that just don't like shopping and don't care about the fees because they got enough discretionary income or whatever reason, they'll keep just getting it delivered. But my point is in the design now is what we, as, as we look at orchestrating a category, we may lay out that category differently. And let's think about like in, in beauty products, um, a lot of small skews that are going on. We may orchestrate that for the shopper one way, but then looking at merchandising, like maybe drawers below, you know, that are for the pickers that are alphabetical. 
you know, which because the pickers aren't, we're not trying to get the picker technically to do what we're getting the shopper to do, right? right. The picker is meant to get in, get out, and honestly get, get out of the way of the shopper so they can browse a little bit. The picker is meant to be fast, in and out, get the stuff. And so that's why an alphabetic orchestration makes a lot of sense in the drawers. It doesn't have to be merchandise. It just has to be in the drawer. Find, you know, if it's Avon X, whatever it is, Avon's a bad example because they, they don't sell, well, whatever. You get, you get, yeah, you, you get the point. Rev, yeah. Revlon. Yeah, so you go to R, you find Revlon, you find the shade, you pull the lipstick, you're out, right? Versus how Revlon, orchest you know, how we orchestrated above, the shopper would be differently. Yeah. So, yeah, but I do think, you know, I give a little, I give a lot of credit, I should say, to the retailers, big and small, who had to nimbly change their business model overnight, you know, but now they have a little bit more time to reflect on where, where sh should like the fulfillment services reside and how should our model work? Target's taken the posi position that they want each of their stores to be the distribution centers. You know, other retailers like, you know, Spartan Foods, a retailer up in Michigan, um, you know, I forget how many stores, Gary, or you guys, you guys may know what number of stores, but let's say right. they got six, 60, 100 stores. I can't remember, maybe more, but in, uh, they went to a dark store format where like yeah. in Grand Rapids, they actually took, a, they may have 15 stores in Grand Rapids. They took one store and made a dark store because they realized like they didn't want the online fulfillment services to disturb the shopping environment of the other 14 stores, which I thought was really smart and progressive of them. Right. And that was, I meant, I meant that guy back three years ago at NRF and they were, you know, doing it, you know, implementing. So I thought they were kind of a little ahead of the curve. You know, I didn't even technically knew what a dark store was. He had to describe it to me. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, They're actually uh, deploying a, a micro fulfillment center to uh, automate fulfillment on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Hey, wow. Joe, so you talked a lot about Chase's work experience, a lot of different examples around your work with CPG brands and manufacturers and so on. Is there an opportunity here for retailers and probably, you know, the, the regional national retailers uh, that have some scale to apply some of your principles and learning around design to their private label? products and, and different categories across the store. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, and on the first part, before you even get to private label, I do want to give tribute that P&G, JMS and others actually, you know, they love working with the retail, regional retailers too, because they're actually, sometimes they're easier and quicker to work with, more nimble decision processes, faster. So whether it's Wakeford and Giant Eagle, you name it, Harris Teeter, a lot of those, you know, different you know, even divisions of bigger companies are sometimes easier to work with. So, and we do reinvention projects like that at that level for sure too, because they sometimes we do that, you know, because they, they need help in their region. And, and, and then it also gives us a case where then we can go to Meyer or Walmart or others and show that, hey, that's, that's the case study. That's a real life, yeah. that's transformed their business. On the private label side of the business, I think for sure, is when you think of the entire portfolio. I, I was I was thinking about there was a there was actually a I, I want to say it's Shoprite Wake Firm was going through working with Lippincott on rebranding all their private label, and you know one of the things is we just started to study the different categories, is is looking at how they are treating private label. How and and I, I'm not critiquing them per se, but in general, is just you know looking at when you're in certain categories, you know should should a private label 
is it good for private label to have the same design across the store? I, you know, I think there's some, you know, rightful reasons for that. But, you know, if you look at private label, for instance, the way Aldi treats it, <laughs> it's, it's more control labels, yeah. right? Where they actually, you know, people don't know until they get into, the, you know, that's a house of, you know, branded goods that are all controlled by them, right? So, and, and not to say that one, one way or the other is the right way to go, it's, but to your question about orchestration, for sure, of knowing, depending on the portfolio of private label you have, what's your position? Like Kroger has three levels, right? They right. got the down, down and derby price level, then they got the mainstream level, and then they got private selection. So depending on the category, they don't have three levels in every category. But, you know, in, in, in coffee, they got three levels in, in other areas. So I think it depends on the store and, and what, how you've treated your private label franchise, in a sense. And then, we, you know, we, we work at the category level and in times, sometimes sum it up to a department. Rarely have we reinvented total store. We have, there's a few clients that actually go across total store. And so there's sometimes where we give Walmart or others a vision of how the whole store could actually reinvent itself and private label has to live within that. So I don't know if that answers your question, Gary, but yeah, I think it, it, there is definitely a, a way that we could help the store think about total private label strategy, but I, I would, I would do it at a more granular level to understand the categories they really want to win in. And know how does that private label strategy have to adjust itself to win in that yeah. category? Because people don't treat, you know, when they think of a household cleaning product versus an olive oil, you know, Kroger bleach versus Kroger extra virgin olive oil. I hope it's not designed the same way. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I mean this is uh, this has been so fascinating and thought provoking because I think you know when you when you live in the digital world like we do at Birdseye, we're looking at data, data, data. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the physical environment and layout can impact decision process, and mm-hmm. you need a complete picture of how a consumer thinks, not just in terms of empirically through the data that they've created, but their actual behavior in real time, right, and what impacts the signals. Yeah, I think think the the frozen, you know, the frozen category, that's, we've done some projects there, but I tell you that, that whole category, like working with Nestle and others, it's, it's, it's a hard category to, to, because there's so much infrastructure cost, but you look at who's, who's doing it better than others. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably be a little preferential here to Trader Joe's, not like they're, they're not even a client. Right. So it's not, I'm just trying to promote a client. I just respect the fact of how they treat their, their frozen section, how it's, they remove the barrier of doors. I know it's probably less efficient from an energy standpoint, but it's just, you know, it, it, and it's just the way they actually organize it, what they do above it, how they create the little highlight areas. Yeah, it's yeah. just an interesting, you know, I, I wish other retailers would learn from that example to say, look, not all these just long aisles of doors, you know, because that all that creates is another barrier. As you know, once someone opens those and they close them for a while there, you can't up, even see the right. product. It just right. frosts up. Yeah. And so the next shopper may not even see where the, that category is. Right. So that would be a, a, that to me is like, to me, like a little Holy grail that I'd love to attack to figure out how to do a couple things in design, which you said early on, which is, is form and function working together. Right. Understanding has to be efficient, but how do we design it to be more appealing and realize like the frozen category is just upgraded immensely as far as health being very healthy for you. I mean, in some 
products, right? right? I'd love to figure out a way to kind of get people to realize frozen vegetables are 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 sometimes healthier than honestly right. the, the <laughs> produce that's sitting yeah. over there yeah. because of what how you how you manage the supply line, right? Yeah. So, but people don't know that they can't connect that. And I just, if we could bring emotion into that set of categories, it'd just be an amazing exercise. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's going to be an interesting mix, you know, as AR and VR kind of take off and come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when you think about experience in store and what could that potentially do to design in terms of access to information as you're walking down an aisle, I think it's exciting, right? I think the next 10 years of retail is just super, super exciting with with all these things, which were traditionally thought of as siloed, right? Which is analytics, marketing data, shopper behavior, and then design and layout of physical store. They're all kind of coming together. And I think it's a, it's a pretty exciting time to be in retail. And, and you know, for those, all those retailers who are listening out there, I think you got to look up Chase Design. You got some amazing case studies and it's just something to be thought about because, you know, if you have e-commerce traffic going up, expectations of people when they walk into your store is starting to change because of their online experience. And I think as a retailer, you've got to be thinking about where is this going and how do I adjust to this behavior to make sure my customers are, you know, ultimately you may sell the best product at the best price, but if the experience is not great, I'm not coming mm-hmm. back, right? Yeah, so right. It's all these intangible factors that go into uh, driving that, and which is what keeps our podcast incredibly exciting because we speak to all these companies that, that think about, there's, like I said, you know, it's an incredibly complex machine. And I think mm-hmm. as a shopper, when you walk into a store, into a Target, and you're going to buy whatever you buy, you're, you're just going in with a single-minded focus. And I guess the purpose of all these systems is to make that, accomplishing that purpose as frictionless and as seamless as possible. Right. So I hope that there's consumers out there listening that you appreciate what goes into retail. Right. And and clearly, I think if you're a retailer out there listening, this is something that you want to be thinking, uh, you know, front of mind. But Joe, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating discussion. And I got to tell you, you, you broke the record. This is the longest single episode that we've ever, we've ever had. <laughs> so, no, but Hopefully that's you know, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's a good thing because I think, I think okay. there's just, well, I, I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes it's refreshing not to talk about AI and machine learning all the time, right? And it's, it's interesting to talk about tangible stuff that you see and everybody can relate to and say, hey, you know, I like this store over that store. I don't know why. And sometimes, you know, when you think about design, you're like, you understand, aha, that's why the lighting is better. Things that, you know, and I think, I think it's, I think there'll be consumers as well as retailers and vendors will appreciate this conversation. We hope you do. If you've got questions, of course, email us at the retail purchase birds at We'll be happy to respond, but Gary, you have any thoughts? Uh, No, Joe, appreciate you being with us today. And, and as Shaker just called out, I I think a lot of people across the industry are going to find, this conversation really interesting because you know they they so many of them they see the results of all this work right in the stores every day when they walk in they don't understand or appreciate all the work all the complexity that goes into making that that happen that in-store environment happen so no i appreciate you being with us this has been great and we'll look forward to getting back oh by the way before i forget joe 
we have a gift coming your way if you can send us a mailing address you're going to get oh, okay, the, great. the retail perch coffee mug that'll be proof <laughs> that you're on the show here and you know it's, it's and, better it's better than my disposable here there <laughs> you go you know one of these days we'll get you uh, i don't know if you've ever seen these amber cups joe but they they are actually a smart cup they sit on a charger and you can set the temperature and you pour the liquid and holds it in that temperature for like oh, nice. an hour or so so maybe one day Gary will graduate to a retail purse. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we're we're going to have to upgrade our mugs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I can control Joe's coffee temperature from the phone. <laughs> That's <right>. here. <laughs> you know, I don't like the answer. I'm going to make it really hot and cool it down. But listen, Joe, it's been so much fun. Thank you so much again for taking the time. And I want to thank uh, Stephanie, of course, who puts together an amazing podcast for us. Gary and I just sit here have fun and laugh and have a great chat. But, uh, you know, again, I want to appreciate all the people who are supporting this podcast. It's been growing steadily. And uh, Gary, I think we continue to move up the rankings, mostly due to Gary and the guests, less due to me. But, uh, you know, but this has been a fascinating conversation. Joe, thank you so much again. And you thank enjoy, you. enjoy the summer. Thank you, guys. Bye. Take right. care. Thank you, Joe. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Yep. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off.